from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, a look at the 2020 session through the lens of civil rights and social justice on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We'll speak with longtime community activist, Reverend Matthew J. Watts in just a moment. But first, senior reporter Dave Mistich and reporter Emily Allen join me for the news update to this evening. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Um, Emily, let's begin with you. In the House, the Judiciary Committee uh, started to discuss the Senate Bill 94 that it has just received. The bill would allow people with certain disabilities to vote electronically through a phone app. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is actually something that the Secretary of State's office kind of introduced during interims, and they seemed a little in a rush. Um, according to General Counsel Donald Kersey to the Secretary of State's office, they proposed it after finding out about um, some lawsuits that are going on across the nation in Ohio and Maryland, most uh, nearby. So here's kind of the issue. Um, right now in West Virginia, People with disabilities um, they can vote absentee ballot, you know, the actual mail-in ballot, or actually at the physical polling place. Um, there are, you know, most are supposed to be ADA compliant. But for people with certain um, visual disabilities or, you know, something to do with their hands, they need assistance to help them vote. And that is a violation, according to the Secretary of State's office and all of these lawsuits, it's a violation of their constitutional right to vote privately. Um, so the Secretary of State's office thinks, you know, and various other, you know, groups and advocacy groups that with an app, um, you know, that would allow them to vote more independently. And um, so this bill really, if it were enacted now, um, Kersey General Counsel was telling them that, you know, they could proactively kind of avoid a lawsuit. And in this next clip that we're about to see, um, right now, he, he kind of elaborates on that. I can say that without the ability of a county to transmit a ballot electronically to a voter who can't mark their ballot without assistance, the law is contrary to the Constitution. So either we prescribe the method that the counties can do this under, or we let a federal court do it for us much closer to the election. So like I said, it's really a proactive effort to avoid a lawsuit. And while the Secretary of State's office here in West Virginia is concerned about the, you know, the legal issues and how counties are gonna implement this new technology before the 2020 election, um, huge election security concerns came out, which is something that Dave has actually addressed. Exactly, Dave, you've done a lot of reporting in the past on the uh, mobile voting pilot for military absentee voting, as well as the election security um, issue. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So, you know, this all goes back to 2018. Secretary of State Mac Warner, uh, he launched this pilot program for military absentee voters. Uh, it was through this app called Votes. Uh, so basically, military personnel would have uh, the ability, if they were overseas, to cast a ballot using their smartphone. Uh, in the primary election, only two counties used it. It was Harrison and Monongalia. 24 counties signed on for the general. 
Um, and in the end, only 144 voters from 21 counties wound up using this app in the general election. So a very small number. Uh, I should say that Tusk Philanthropies is this group that's been giving money to the Secretary of State's office, to counties, uh, or giving money to counties uh, to implement this, this app. Um, they paid for a study through the University of Chicago that basically concluded that it increased voter participation for the population involved in the pilot. And I, we should add that um, Tusk Montgomery the Philanthropies, they are the one that, according to General Counsel Donald Kersey, is going to pay for this um, in the 2020 election for people with disabilities. So, um, you know, according to that, there will be no cost to counties, no cost to the state. Right. Uh, but, and this is the key part of all of this, is that you know, every election security expert that I've, I've spoke to on this issue basically says that any internet-facing voting system, uh, you know, they've cautioned, uh, I should say warned against using these types of system, uh, these types of systems because of the possibility of being hacked. So um, if you go talk to any election security expert anywhere in the country, they're going to say if it connects to the internet, either by phone or by computer, be very, very, very careful, and they actually go as far as to recommend not using it. So, all right, that was happening in the um, in the House side and judiciary. Tell us something about what was going on on the Senate side. Dave. Sure. So, there's three bills that passed over here in the upper chamber today. I'm going to explain one really quickly. Uh, Senate Bill 16, which is creating our uh, the Protect Our Right to Unite Act, uh, bill would essentially protect membership lists and donations to 501c designated nonprofits. Uh, from public disclosure other than specific instances involving campaign finance, lobbying, uh, laws, you know, on the books about that. So a group like the NAACP or the NRA, AFL-CIO, or the Friends of West Virginia Public Broadcasting for that matter, uh, or any other 501c wouldn't have to give this information out um, unless it dealt with uh, electioneering or lobbying laws. Um, it's one of those bills that has support from Americans for Prosperity, the ACLU, leaders of unions say they support this bill. Uh, but I should point out that, you know, since these groups are not government agencies, they would already not be subject to disclosure. So again, we're, we're sort of codifying something that, um, that doesn't, wouldn't be subject to disclosure in the first place. Um, bill passed out of the Senate with a 34 to 0 vote, now has the House. All right, over in the um, House again, there was a news conference on rising costs of prescription drugs. I know you attended. More so insulin. Um, so it was hosted kind of by Delegate Barbara Fleischauer, a Democrat, and Delegate Jordan Hill, a Republican. And they are planning to you know, co-sponsor together a bill that would put caps on rising insulin costs in West Virginia. Um, so they talked about that at the conference. Uh, Fleischauer actually had like a traveling caravan, you know, bring people to Canada um, a few months ago to, you know, get lower uh, priced insulin there. And she had people from that uh, trip at this conference. There were a lot of parents though. Um, mothers who are diabetic or mothers who have children who are diabetic, very young children, teenagers, and they talked a bit about, you know, kind of how they've noticed these costs have risen. Um, one mother from Cabell County mentioned that um, her copay for her and her son, both type 1 diabetics, is like $850 a month. Um, someone else mentioned that without federal assistance through the CHIP program, child health insurance program, um, in 2017 their insulin would have costed more than $1,000. So this next clip we're going to hear from Braxton, who's a Kanawha County teen. He's been diabetic for a few years, and he, he was one of the people that called for these caps. My name is Braxton Smith. I've been a diabetic for over four years. Um, these insulin prices are just getting out of hand. They are getting ridiculous. We need to put a cap on them. 
because in five years I'll be 18 out living on my own. Who knows how much money I'll have. So nationally, um, there has been kind of a move to hold these insulin manufacturers accountable. Uh, actually, recently, Colorado's legislature passed a very similar bill that would put a $100 cap on this. Um, so there are several lawmakers that were present for this um, press conference today, including uh, this lawmaker in this next clip we're going to hear from Marion County. So hearing these stories have really touched my heart, and we have to work to cap these uh, out-of-pocket cost for insulin. So I want to thank Delegate Fleischauer for her leadership, for bringing this to all of our attention, and I can assure you that this is going to be a bipartisan effort. Republicans, Democrats alike, we're going to tackle this because you all should not be paying these kind of costs. And Dave, yet another public hearing, another uh, press conference today over in the House. Tell us about that. Well, this is public hearing. Um, is the first of this session. Saw a couple big issues last year, like education reform and campus carry come up. Uh, this was about um, fire safety and you know building homes. Um, this is a subject that wasn't really on my radar before today, but the long and short of it is there's this rules bundle, House Bill 4275. Um, that would roll back a specific regulation on an electrical code. Uh, the way I understand it is there's this piece of equipment called an AFCI that helps pre prevent fires. Uh, electricians and others at the public hearing cited statistic after statistic how that's true. But I understand that the Home Builders Association opposes the requirement citing costs um, and they say that there's no proof that these, these, this piece of equipment does prevent fires. Um, Basically, this, this House bill would get the West uh, would get the state on par with the national electrical electric code, but would not require these AFCIs to be a part of the state fire code. It is on the amendment stage and will be up in the House tomorrow on on second reading. So. Okay, and one real quickly, the governor did have a press conference today with Delegate Daniel Linville. What was that about? Sure, uh, this is all a result of Delegate Linville calling attention to the reactivation of this employee suggestion award board. Um, state employees have the opportunity to make su suggestions that would save their agency money and get a cash award for doing so. Uh, for all adopted suge suggestions, the, maxim the maximum award is limited to 20% of the first year's estimated savings uh, as, as established by the head of that unit or $16,000. Today they passed out uh, $4,400 between two state employees and here's Delegate Linville at that press conference. What this board has done over the past uh, two or three months has been to save the state the amount that a state legislator makes every single year. And we're not done. We're going to keep meeting. We're going to keep doing this. And the thing I want to tell Governor to all the members of state government is we are going to keep doing this. And if you've got a good idea, we've put a bounty on it. I want to cut you a check for 20%. We want to come back here. We want to recognize you and to follow your careers. Events throughout the state and county, country rather, celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today. As Randy Yowie reports here in Charleston, Dr. King's teachings continue to ring true with a diverse population. Here, MLK Day always begins with a symbolic march to the Capitol following a church service. Before ringing the bell of freedom, people from all walks of life braved the cold, braved it with the warmth of Dr. King's spirit in their minds and hearts. This year's theme, the beloved community, the fierce urgency of now. So what is it that we need to be fiercely urgent about right now in 2020 when it comes to the teachings of Dr. King? 
poverty, fighting poverty, fighting hunger. Um, but another thing that I'd like to point out is that we have a lot of issues around race and uh, lack of inclusion and diversity. As America, we lost our dream. We're no longer the home uh, and the refuge for the people who uh, need a home. Um, we're all immigrants unless we're Native Americans. We're very divided at the top in D.C. We're also a little bit fractured in West Virginia. Uh, there's a lot of things that are on the table right now. I mean, you talk about IDD waiver. Uh, you talk about uh, equal rights and, and housing for the LGBTQ community. All of us as Americans treating each other with a dignity and respect that we should. And that has been lost, and we need to bring that back. So that's what I would hope for and pray for today. When can a black person or a woman do something and not be accused of being, oh, well, you're black, you're a woman, just suck it up. I am tired of having to suck it up. You know, I believe we should have a right to express ourselves and to be treated as human beings. This year, that bell ringing of freedom reminds those gathered here of the fierce urgency ahead. At the Capitol, I'm Randy Yowie for the Legislature Today. Join us now, Reverend Matthew J. Watts, President and CEO of Hope Community Development Corporation here in Charleston. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having you, me. You are no stranger to the Capitol. You have been um, uh, working toward and lobbying for reform. Uh, here for many years. I'd like you just to, to, to speak to some of the comments that were made. Um, some of them were very grim, very pessimistic about um, the job we're doing with Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. Um, for Just in some opening remarks how West Virginia is doing in terms of civil rights and social justice for all of its citizens. You know, West Virginia is the least diverse state in the United States of America, and I think as a result of that, we may be somewhat insensitive uh, to some of the challenges of the, uh, the minority groups. Uh, there have been some progress made, but there's still a long ways to go. As evidenced by a report that was produced some years ago, the Select Committee on Minority Affairs report, which delineates some serious uh, disparities and discrepancies in everything from education, employment, economic development, uh, juvenile justice, over incarceration, adult criminal justice, et cetera. And as some of the people articulated you know, in that piece there, that there are still some real concerns that everyone is not treated fairly and equitably. But I'd like to quote from Mr. Brian Stevenson. Uh, we must remain hopeful uh, because hopelessness is indeed the enemy of justice. So despite the challenges, I'm still quite hopeful. Well, tell me briefly what the mission, the goal is of the HOPE uh, Community Development Corporation. Well, HOPE City is an organization that I established about 24 years ago with the mission of trying to empower inner city residents, particularly on the west side of Charleston, through education, employment, economic development, uh, safe affordable housing, improving healthcare outcome for the citizens. The goal is to create a model that can be replicated around the rest of the country. And we think that we have some ideas that could be replicated, at least here in West Virginia, and maybe even beyond. So and, we continue and, to pursue that mission. And I, I want to get into some of those ideas as it relates to some of the specific reforms. But w would you say your overarching focus is that um, achievement gap that we see clearly between white children, white students, and, and black students? 
Absolutely. Education is supposed to be the great equalizer in this country. Education determines employment opportunities, employment determines income, income determines standard of living, who will be in poverty or who will not be in poverty. And so we look in that many years after the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision, which supposedly ended segregation, there's still a significant achievement gap between African-American students and their white counterparts. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about addressing it, but very little progress has been made in closing the achievement gap in West Virginia over the last 20 plus years that I've been paying attention to the issue. Uh, this session, your big push has to do with education reform. It has to do with d discipline and expulsion. And with uh, some information that we have, West Virginia's African-American students uh, within our public schools have excessive discipline and expulsion rates when compared to other populations. We have a few graphics that um, are supplied by the West Virginia Department of Education. This first one illustrates how black students are referred for discipline issues and incidents more often than their peers of other races or ethnicities. We can look at the, the far right um, information is the, most, uh, is the most recent, 2018 to 2019. And uh, you point out, uh, Reverend Watts, that while the children, um, black children represent only 5% of our population, we can see there that it, uh, they represent 38.2% of the disciplinary action. Okay. If I can just kind of, uh, kind of rephrase it a second. What this graph actually shows that 38.2% of all African-American students were disciplined during that school year. And as you can see, significantly higher than uh, the other uh, students. So blacks are referred from discipline at a much higher rate than whites or any other ethnic group. And, and so how do you interpret these statistics? What's happening? Well, I think what's happening is that there's um, a built-in bias. It may not be intended against African-American students. Uh, a built-in bias to where they are disciplined more harshly and more frequently. But it's not just in the public school system. The same bias has been found in the juvenile justice system. In 2005, Dr. Stephen Haas did a, a robust report and pointed out that black children are overrepresented at every stage of the juvenile justice process. Arrest, uh, detention, adjudication, incarceration, transfer to adult status than any other group. Uh, about three or four years ago, the United States Justice Department came to West Virginia and cited and threatened to sue West Virginia for the violation of the civil rights of kids with mental disabilities. And black youth are four times more likely to have their rights violated. So it's in the school, it's in the juvenile justice system, it's in mental health. Wherever there are black children, they seem, there seems to be a bias against them where they're treated more harshly. It may not be intended, but it seems to be baked into the system. And I did some research where I found reports over the culture center as early as 1976, there was a report done by the Western State Human Rights Commission, and they highlight the fact that blacks were being over-disciplined, excessively and disproportionately compared to white kids. Another report in, 28, uh, in 1980, and then a big report by the University of Pennsylvania in uh, 2015. And so there the data is there. And, and there are studies that show that suspensions move kids closer to that uh, to the corrections pipeline. Yeah, it's called the schoolyard to prison yard pipeline. And there's a recent study done by Professor Thomas Moen 
a uh, professor at Bowling State University and some of his colleagues, and they said every suspension moves a child further and further down the schoolyard to prison line pipeline, and that's why it's so critical that it be addressed. And so you're talking with lawmakers about this very information. What, what are you saying? What kind of feedback are you getting? What are the solutions to this? As I said, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. We've gotten a very good response uh, from uh, Senator Patricia Rucker, uh, the Senate Education Chair, as well as from the House Education Chair, Mr. Joe Ellington. When I showed them the data, uh, they responded surprised initially, but said we certainly need to look into this. Senator Rucker has agreed that she's going to draft a piece of legislation that will require some oversight uh, to this matter from the state school superintendent's office, as well as work the local school superintendents to, to create a statewide awareness of the problem. And the reason this is important, uh, Ms. Ding, it's not just African-American students, right? Low-income Caucasian students are being suspended at a very high rate. And since Caucasians make up 90% of the school population, right, of students in West Virginia, of the 270,000 students, about 240,000 are Caucasian. So what it's saying is it means that about 17,000 Caucasian students are suspended at least once per year. And so they're becoming a part of that schoolyard to prison yard pipeline. And that's why it's so important that this matter be addressed, as Dr. King said, with some sense of urgency. You want us to get ahead of the problem. You want those wraparound services to be available um, and, and to uh, address what, uh, what we know as the, the, the barriers of education, those social determinants of, of health. That is correct. You know, as, uh, as wonderful as House Bill 206 was, it had a nice funding bill with some good policy initiative. What it does not do, it is not required that the achievement gap be addressed. It is not required that the suspension and expulsion disparity be addressed. It does not provide wraparound services in the evenings uh, for students, the weekends, nor for the summers. And it doesn't address the 991 principle. And that is, uh, from birth to age 19, children spend 9% of their time at school and 91% somewhere other than school, and that's where they need support. What other areas are, are you addressing? What other um, messages do you want to deliver to lawmakers? We'd like to deliver to lawmakers uh, that we really need in West Virginia to fund a robust summer employment opportunity for youth ages 14 uh, to 18 or still in school because of cuts in federal funding. There's very limited resources to fund jobs for youth during the summer. And we believe that summer work not only helped them develop the work ethic, but also there could be academic enrichment and career awareness for many of these young people that have been suspended, that are behind academically, to try to help them make up some of that ground so that they're closely being on track uh, with their literacy and numeracy and are better prepared for graduation. What about those um, um, graduation uh, rates, high school, for um, African-American children and, and their um, potential and readiness to go on to some kind of um, uh, post-secondary training, uh, college, community college? That's an excellent question. Uh, fortunately, we have made great strides in improving graduation rates for all races and ethnic groups in West Virginia. We have a pretty high graduation rate. But having said that, many of our students graduate from high school African-Americans and low-income Caucasians have low literacy and numeracy rates. They're not prepared for employment, and higher percentage of them are not prepared to do post-secondary education work. 
And so that's a great challenge. And that's why I believe we need summer academic enrichment and career awareness opportunities because the children are graduating, but they're not prepared for work, not prepared for post-secondary education, and not prepared to be productive in the society. Can you speak to what you have seen um, the impact has been uh, of the, the, drug, the drug epidemic in West Virginia on families, on, on newborns, um, on, on these uh, uh, grade school and high school children? It's been devastating uh, what the uh, drug epidemic has done. Not, notwithstanding the recent opioid crisis, I happened to be to minister on the west side of Charleston, so it's, it was ground zero in the late 80s and early 90s and 2000 for the crack cocaine epidemic. And we're still trying to recover from that. And on top of that, now the opioid epidemic has come. It certainly requires an all hands on deck. It requires us to have an incredible uh, commitment to it. Because in the end, West Virginia cannot be strong if we lose our children in the womb and in the cradle. And right now, a high percentage of children uh, that are, are born in uh, our birth and hospitals are born with substance abuse in their system. And, uh, and it's affecting them for the rest of their lives. So it certainly uh, uh, demands our full attention, do all that we can to try to strengthen and stabilize families so that our children have better outcomes. All right, Reverend Watts, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank we you for having me. appreciate it very much. Tomorrow on the legislature today, we begin a two-night focus on West Virginia's major energy sectors. Oil and gas development tomorrow evening and the forecast and challenges faced by the coal industry on Wednesday. Energy and environment reporter Brittany Patterson will bring us these reports and follow-up conversations. We hope you tune in. I'm Suzanne Higgins for everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a great evening.